mean, we just worked really, really hard to find a third path, which was to just do it ourselves and just basically fund ourselves. That's Paul Canetti, the founder and CEO of Maz, a platform that empowers leaders in media to become pioneers in OTT and mobile technology. Before diving into tech startups, Paul studied philosophy and loved to teach and play music. He left a job at a law firm to be among the opening day staff for Apple's flagship Fifth Avenue location in New York. That role led him to take his technology talents into his own consultancy, which in turn led him to building websites and apps. What Paul is talking about is what it was like building Maz, a platform for creating highly flexible native apps. They were faced with either shutting down or raising more money, but Paul and his team decided to pursue a third path and invest in themselves. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Today we're speaking with Paul Canetti, the founder and CEO of Maz, a flexible platform for developing native mobile and OTT applications. Growing up, Paul was exposed to design and technology through his father's work and hobbies. Paul taught himself digital design, and although he studied philosophy in college, he continued to maintain an interest in technology. After working in corporate environments and then consulting, Paul started building websites and then iPhone apps with a high school friend. Their passion for building products led to them creating Maz, raising $2 million, and then continuing to build and scale the businesses in a sustainable way. Paul is also an associate professor at Columbia University in New York, where he teaches a class on user experience and product management for the MBA program. He is also a podcaster and the host of Wizardus, a podcast that features startup founders, VCs, and other interesting personalities to learn about their past experiences and views on the future. Paul joins us to share his story, how he got into startups, what it was like growing Maz in the early days, how he approaches fundraising, why he got into podcasting, and much more. So let's get started. Hey, Paul. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Franco and I are extremely excited to have you on the show to learn more about yourself, uh, you know, your time in entrepreneurship, design, and so forth. But before we dive into that, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Where are you from and, and what did you study? Yeah, that's actually an interesting question. So um, I'm from the New York area and still reside here. I actually studied in college. I studied philosophy. Turns out my mom was right and there's not a lot of jobs in philosophy. So I had to search elsewhere. But I, I like to think that uh, a background in philosophy just makes you a better human being. And I actually believe there's there's a fair amount of business skills that come along with a philosophy degree, although they don't really promote it that way. And so the design stuff was um, that really got me into tech was all sort of homeschooled, not, you know, through formal training. So how did that passion kind of come about for design and technology? So my dad was a graphic designer and he actually taught graphic design at a university in like the 70s. And so I guess it, it runs in the family, but I grew up sort of in a designy household in that way. And um, he did more product design and clocks, frames, bags, you know, physical objects, which I have 
fairly limited experience with. But um, what was interesting is, you know, I, I'm a kid of like the 80s and 90s. And in the early 90s, he went out and was always buying like the latest Apple computers and the latest design software sort of fancying himself, you know, a modern designer who wanted to get into some of this early stuff, like very early versions of Photoshop and some software called like freehand and really by today's standard rudimentary software, but at the time, like super cutting edge design software, but he really knew nothing about computers. And so I was just naturally drawn to computers and technology. And basically I'm the one that ended up just installing and learning those different softwares and trying to teach them to my dad. And then in turn, he was really teaching me the principles of design, but like old school designs, like typography wasn't on a computer. It was, you know, like there were these, um, these basically like boards, like printouts called Letra Press, which is basically like a transparent sheet of paper with different fonts on it. And then you actually rub off each letter one by one onto a piece of paper. And that's how you would like create a logo or something. And so I really learned the principles of layout design and graphic design, like the old school way. Probably I'm of the last generation to get that sort of education because it was coming from the previous generation. And then just sort of naturally that folded into the stuff I was learning on the computer. And that's really how I got into like digital design. That's super cool. I'm kind of jealous that you you were exposed to such interesting approaches to to design at a at a young age. So at what point throughout you know your exploration in design did you actually enter into the design as a career? And what were some of your first few jobs? Yeah. So even as a teenager, I was doing some freelance design work, mostly like magazine ads, stuff like that. And just locally, I'm a musician as well. And so I was always creating posters for my band or promotional materials, things like that. And just, you know, trying to apply the skills I was getting. And then of course, in high school, I started to get into web design and web coding, like early HTML. And that's actually where I met one of my best friends and the co-founder of Maz. And so we actually really founded our friendship over a shared love of early web programming. So you can imagine like how cool we were in high school. And basically he was the only other person I knew that like cared about HTML and some of these technologies. And we started putting together websites and then we ended up going to college together and and being college roommates. And so it became pretty apparent that, and his name is Simon, Simon Baumer, he was really good at coding and I was really just thought of it as like a means to an end. I had the ideas. I knew how I wanted it to look. I could, you know, sort of imagine the designs, but then I had to go through all this pesky code to actually get there. Whereas Simon clearly had a real knack and passion for the code itself. And so we became sort of a natural tag team in that regard. And we're always just sort of working on little projects and things, not professionally, but, but just our own interests. And then after college, Simon went and became a web developer and was doing a bunch of freelance stuff and worked with um, ACLU and worked with a startup called Daily Worth. And I went on to do freelance design work and um, got into magazine design, print design initially, and then into web design. And then I ended up at Apple and obviously 
got my feet wet in the days of early mobile and apps. And long story short, after I left, Simon and I met back up and started Maz. And so, you know, the company that I run today really was born out of this sort of early shared love of technology and design that Simon and I formed back when we were teenagers. Wow, that's pretty incredible. I'm totally, you know, going to dive more into into the Maz side of things uh, in just a second. But going further on that story, so as you mentioned, you ended up joining Apple. So what was it like? Like, how did you create the opportunity to to join that company at that time? Like, mobile was just starting to happen. What was that whole experience like for you? Yeah, so it's interesting. I I started at Apple in the spring of 2006, almost exactly one year before the unveiling of the first iPhone. And if so, of course, I had no idea that that was on the horizon. And um, I started at Apple uh, working at the Apple Store, Apple Store Fifth Avenue, um, as part of the grand opening launch team. And so for those that don't know, um, the Fifth Avenue Store is like this big as an understatement, giant glass cube right on Fifth Avenue across from Central Park, basically the world's most prime retail real estate in the world. And they were building this new store at the time, which was going to be the flagship store for the whole world. And I think when we opened, there were maybe 500 employees just at this one store. I think today it's closer to a thousand. The store is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. There's really just nothing like it. And um, when they opened, they were starting up this new team called the creative team. And the creative team was sort of like the cousin to the genius team. And so where the genius bar was really for technical support, the creatives who worked at the studio, which was sort of like genius bar is too genius as studio is too creative, a place where you came to learn about how to use your Mac at the time. And then eventually, of course, how to use your iPhone and iPad and all that good stuff. And so for that sort of inaugural class, they hired creative professionals from a bunch of different fields. And so I was working with professional film editors, photographers, audio engineers, and designers like myself that kind of constituted this team of creative professionals that were teaching group classes and even individual one-on-one training right inside the store in New York City. And so the story is actually funny When you graduate with a degree in philosophy, there's really only a couple of career paths that are straightforward. One is to get a master's and eventually a PhD in philosophy and teach philosophy. The second is to become a lawyer. And the third is very rare, which is like to become a philosopher, which usually is the first option, but then you go on to like write books. So none of that really sounded appealing to me, but the the law firm thing was something that I at least was was curious about. And so I took a job as a paralegal at a law firm. So my first full-time job out of college, after doing some freelance design stuff, but really wanting something full-time, was at a law firm. And it was like a big, corporate, terrible law firm. And I knew that being a paralegal would suck, but I thought maybe if the lawyers seemed cool, that that would be something interesting to pursue. I mean, my job as a paralegal was literally to take like stacks of paper and put them in chronological order. Like it's insane that they had humans doing this work. And um, the interesting part of the story is that we were in the General Motors building, which is on the corner of 59th and 5th Avenue here in New York City, the exact block where they were constructing the new Apple store. And so I was on the 30-something floor of this huge skyscraper, and I would look down out the conference room window, 
onto this massive construction site. And it was a secret. Nobody knew what it was, but there were a lot of rumors that it was going to be an Apple store. By coincidence, I was online trying to find new jobs. I went on a site called monster.com, which is a job site. I had only been at the law firm for three months and I just hated working there. And there was a job for this creative position that was sort of secretive in New York. And I put two and two together that it must be at that store. As it turned out, I was right. And so I applied for the job and it was an arduous interview process, but eventually got the gig and ended up working right there on that same block in the same building, but um, out in front at this new Apple store. So you applied for a job that you didn't know was with Apple? I knew it was with Apple, but I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. Like they, you know, the job posting where they were looking for creative professionals to train, to do, you know, consumer facing training, but they didn't talk about where it was or what exactly it was. Or even the interview process was like pretty sketchy because they were launching this new team as part of this new store, which hadn't even been announced yet. So that was sort of, you know, obsessed with Apple and, and had been an Apple fanboy since a young age. And so I didn't need to know the details to know that I wanted to work there. For sure. That's awesome. So after, you know, your career with Apple, you ended up launching your own consultancy. So what motivated you to go out on your own at that point? Was was there a drive back towards uh, entrepreneurship or, or what really led to that? You know, without getting too into it, my my career at Apple sort of led in, in different directions. And um, I got more into the sort of back end training, employee training, ended up managing quite a large team there and really liked it. But there was something else that I really wanted to pursue in my life, which actually has nothing to do with tech. But I mentioned it before is music. I was playing in a band at the time called Love and Logic. If you're curious, you can do some Googling or some YouTube searching. And um, and we were actually gaining some traction. So this is something I was doing, you know, in the nights, on the weekends, playing in this band. And really, we were starting to take it more seriously, thinking about touring. And that was really my number one creative passion. And so I actually left Apple to pursue a career in music. And I moved back home with my parents into the basement and I quit my job and decided that this was it. I was going to I was going to go and, and pursue a career in music. Everyone thought I was crazy. One week, literally to the day after leaving my job at Apple's when I met my wife, by the way, my future wife. And, you know, I was like, I don't have a job. I live with my parents. But trust me, like a week ago, I was really awesome. And so, you know, amazing that she decided to date me. But uh, I pursued the music career for a while. And um, and we did pretty well. We had videos on MTV on VH1. And, you know, we were starting to make a name for ourselves in the music business, but it doesn't really pay the bills. And so on the side, what I did was I started doing my own consulting. And um, the name of the business was Paul the Wizard. And basically, I did at home consulting. And so I would go to people's homes and teach them how to use their technology. And this could be anything. So I helped people set up home recording studios. I would help people learn how to edit in Final Cut Pro. But then I also, you know, would go and teach old ladies how to check their email, literally anything. And it's actually a pretty good business. I mean, I was charging $100 an hour. I would come to your house and I started to get recurring business and was able to basically generate a decent salary. But I was able to make my own hours and work really whenever I wanted and sort of make a name for myself within New York City as like that computer guy, Paul the Wizard. That really helped pay the bills when I was pursuing my music. And then I started expanding 
those sort of side projects by teaming up with my friend Simon and starting to work on websites and apps. So this is like 2009. The app store was only was less than a year old. And so there were not a lot of companies doing mobile apps. This was, you know, iPhone was the only game in town. This whole idea of the iOS SDK and third party apps was brand new. There were no really notable apps. The apps of the day were like app that makes it look like you're drinking a beer or like an app that looks like a lighter, you know, these sort of novelty type apps. And none of the big agencies here in New York City were doing app development. They were all doing web development still. And so uh, we teamed up with another friend of mine who was at Apple and we started working on mobile apps for iPhone. And we started to get some pretty major clients that really we had no business. I mean, we, we weren't a real agency at that point. We were just working out of our homes and just sort of messing around, learning ourselves. I mean, designing for iOS wasn't like a thing. We were all just sort of teaching ourselves as we went. But we realized there was a real opportunity because there was nobody doing apps. And uh, that business started to pick up as the music sort of started to dwindle a bit. And so that's, I'm sure we'll get into it, but that sort of led into me really pursuing technology more seriously. But there was this sort of intermediary period of a year or two where I was really trying to pursue a career in music. Yeah, absolutely. It's really cool. What was the first app you, you made? Do you remember? The, the very first app, I'm not sure, but maybe the most notable app was this, um, it was like a, an app for Ford Motor Company, which is like a sweepstakes type app. And so again, like a company like Ford was hiring yeah, it's pretty huge. our little agency. It told us something about the market, which was that there was clearly a gap between the needs of these big brands and what was sort of available because it was just such a new thing. No one really knew about it. And uh, me and a friend at the time founded this the first iOS like meetup on meetup.com in New York. It still exists today, although I'm not involved with it anymore, like the, the Brooklyn iOS meetup. And at the beginning, there were like four or five people, which were just like people curious about iOS development. And now it has, you know, hundreds of people, maybe more. And so it was really, really early days for, for iOS. That's cool. And so you know, you guys went from the the small agency working on just the, the odd project and then eventually, you know, with Simon, you started Maz. So can you tell us a little bit more about what Maz does and, and what really motivated you to start that? Yeah. So maybe I'll, I'll tell you first what Maz is today and then we can sort of, you know, go back to those those early days. But Maz is a software company that basically has a variety of products that are platform level tools for creating apps. And so sort of the way that you would create a website with a CMS platform like WordPress or Squarespace or something like that, you create apps, native apps with Maz products. And so we have a product called Phoenix. We have a product called TVX, which is more video and TV focused. Um, we just released this week a new product called NewsX, which is a platform that is optimized and built specifically for like breaking news organizations. And so the idea is that these big media companies, instead of hiring a development team or a development agency, their designers and marketers and product managers use the Maz tools to 
create and host these apps. And so the tools themselves are sort of these drag and drop design tools where you can put together an experience without any code. And then we also have a fully fledged CMS where you can host and manage the content, payment integrations, subscriber database management, advertising integrations, sponsorships, analytics. So it's, it's really a soup to nuts sort of solution. And so our customers are companies like Bloomberg, Hearst, Forbes, Gannett, and hundreds of others. And so if you open up an app like Men's Health or Bloomberg Business Week, you'll see a little powered by Maz right on the launch screen when it opens. And that means that they developed that app using our software instead of hiring developers. That's amazing. And so that's what it does today. How did you guys what was the first version of the product like, I guess? How did you guys go from, you know, the tiny app shop to building this type of software? So in those early days, we were getting a lot of calls and taking meetings from media companies here in New York. And New York is really the media news capital of the U.S. So we were sort of in the perfect spot. And these companies, of course, wanted to hire us to develop apps, you know, one-off apps. But the price was really prohibitive. Like we needed to charge a lot of money to produce these apps. Um, we were gonna need to hire more people. They were really, really big projects. And we sort of realized that on the web, there had already been sort of a similar cycle where in the early days of the web, everybody built websites from scratch, from zero. Every single time you would start with a blank slate and build a website from the ground up. But now this is 2010 and nobody would build a website like that anymore. There were these frameworks, these sort of infrastructure tools, CMS tools like WordPress and Joomla and Drupal and more on the sort of consumer side, Squarespace and Wix, where it would be very rare that a company would start a website from scratch. You know, even big websites like CNN.com are built on WordPress. They're not built from scratch. And we thought, well, apps are going to inevitably be the same sort of thing, that it's just redundant to build essentially the same app over and over again for a bunch of different companies. And so what we set out to do is to create these sort of platform level tools. And so what we do today is, is really still the original vision that we had. It's just much more robust today and we service a much wider group of companies in the early days, we really were targeting magazines and newspapers. It was right when the iPad came out in early 2010. And we realized that the iPad was really going to be a reading device. And it's funny to think about now, but like at the time, nobody really read stuff on their iPhone. So people had already been using the iPhone for three years, but nobody read on it. You didn't read articles. You didn't read books on your iPhone, which is really weird to think about. This is only 10 years ago and, and even up to seven or six years ago, people did not read on their phones, which is almost inconceivable. But the iPad at the time represented what everyone agreed was a reading device. And these news companies wanted to have a presence there. And so that's really where we targeted initially. It was like, how do we target these news and magazine and newspaper companies that want to be on the iPad? And so the initial version of the product was aimed at those sorts of customers and getting them onto the iPad. And then over the years, we basically just expanded on both sides. So we expanded who is the type of customer, like what's the type of company that could actually use Maz? And on the other side, what's the sort of output? And so today we output to all iOS devices, Apple Watch, all Android devices, also 
smart TV and OTT devices like Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Chromecast. Uh, we output to the web with an HTML5 product. So that original vision is still there. It's just sort of expanded. And the real crux of it is that I am a designer that loves to make software, but I don't know how to code. And so what I always wanted for myself and for other designers is to have tools that would allow me to create software without code. And that's really what drives everything at Maz. In other words, how do we empower these teams, whether it be a team of designers or marketers, to create awesome software without needing to code? I, I don't know if I realized it, honestly, at the time, but I've come to realize it since that the sort of ethos of Maz came out of my own frustration as a designer that doesn't know how to code. Yeah, absolutely. That's huge. And and definitely, you know, I, I think the way that a lot of software is going is, is enabling other people who don't have the skill set to to create what they want to create and see it come to life. And so it's cool and, and really amazing to see that you guys are filling that need and, and able to push that that content anywhere onto any device. That, that's amazing. Yeah, thanks. And and it's funny because if you even look at code today, like real code, like Swift, if you're developing for iOS, let's say, if you talk to a programmer from, let's say, the 80s, they would say that Swift is cheating. Like that's not real programming. What we do is real programming. And then if you look at code from the 80s, which is just like disgusting, and you show it to someone from the 60s who was programming computers with like punch cards, they would say, well, that's not real programming. What we do is real programming. And then, you know, I don't know if you've seen like the movie Hidden Figures, you know, the, the history of computing is that before machines did it at all, they had real people like your job title was computer and you computed, and that was real computing, you know? And so in every generation and every decade, you see sort of more and more abstraction of what it is to program, of what it is to compute. And so, and in every sort of generation, the programmers of the day sort of say, well, that's not real programming. And then that becomes the norm. And then something even easier and even more abstracted comes around. And so the work that I'm trying to do at Maz is just sort of pushing that further. And you're right, there's more and more tools in this vein. And really the hope is and the goal is that anybody should be able to create any sort of software they want, regardless of their technical expertise. And that if you abstract it enough, anybody can create anything. And that's really democratizing sort of what it is to create software. So Maz raised over $2 million from VCs. What was it like raising money for Maz? And what advice would you give to others looking to raise, you know, maybe their initial round of funding or their seed round of funding? Raising money sucks is the headline. You know, there are a lot of startups that write about it or you read the headlines and they make it seem super easy and everybody sort of pats everybody on the back like, oh, you raise money. It's awesome. But it is really, really hard. And I love our investors. It's it's not them. It's all of the other people that didn't invest. You know, for every investor that we have at Maz, I probably talked to 50 that did not invest. And so it takes a very long time and there's a, a really multifaceted approach because the first thing is you have to be able to meet investors. Even if you have the best idea in the world, the best company in the world, the best team, the best traction, like everything adds up. If you don't actually know any investors, well, they're not going to invest. And so the reason I like to tell the, the Paul the Wizard story is because 
our initial set of investors, believe it or not, were some of my Paul the Wizard customers. Our very first angel investor, we had done a very small sort of friends and family round, but our first outside investor, there was a woman who I would help and I believe what we were trying to do was migrate her iTunes library, like something very mundane, but something that takes a long time. I think it was combining two different iTunes libraries, right? So this is, again, just flashing back to early days of Maz when I'm also pursuing my music career. I'm paying the bills by doing this Paul the Wizard consulting work. And so basically, I'd go to this woman's house and I'd sit in her kitchen and just copy files from one iTunes library to the other. Sometimes her husband would come home from work while I was there and I'd be sitting in the kitchen and he would crack open a beer and just sort of we'd shoot the shit and he'd ask me what I'm working on and I would tell him about Maz. And, you know, just over the months that I spent there, I was probably there once or twice a week. I got to know this family and skipping ahead when it came time to raise money, he was like a very high net worth hedge fund manager, the kind of guy that. I almost bumped into a painting once in his house and he warned me that it was over a million dollars just for this one painting. And so he was a really good guy to know. And it turned out a couple of our other early investors were similar situations where these were people that I had been helping. Because honestly, if you think about who is the type of person that would pay some kid to come at the rate of $100 an hour to like transfer their photos, that's probably someone with a lot of money. And so that's really how I got into the early sort of network of investors. And what's interesting about investors is that the main criteria that investors want to see is that there are other investors. And so there's very often a chicken or egg problem where you can meet with an investor, but the first thing they're going to say is, who else is investing? How much money do you have in so far? And the kiss of death is to say, nobody you would be the first. Nobody wants to be the first. And so I was able to sort of solve that chicken or egg problem by recruiting these Paul the Wizard clients as my early investors. And these are not professional tech investors. These are high net worth individuals who understood that there was a boom happening in the world of technology, mobile technology, apps. You know, they're reading about in the Wall Street Journal, this app and that app and about these tech companies really taking off. And so here's this guy literally sitting in their living room who used to work at Apple, is working on a tech startup and looking for investment. And so when I started to get introduced to quote unquote, real angel investors, in other words, professional technology investors, I had already solved that chicken or egg problem a bit, a bit because we already had some money in the door. From there, it really just became about networking. And there's a book that I'm, one day I'll write this book if I ever get around to it, which probably means never, but the concept is called A Thousand Coffees. And that's what I think it takes to raise capital. I think it takes 1,000 coffee meetings. And I can plot on a map or take you on a walking tour of New York City and every cafe, every Starbucks, every restaurant, I can tell you who I met and when and what that conversation meant uh, in the trajectory of Maz. And it was just a long haul of just meeting everyone you could possibly meet. And the reason I talk about a thousand coffees is because I believe that if you can sit down with someone and have a coffee and stay in touch with that person, it doesn't need to be actively, they're not like your best friend, but you connect on LinkedIn or you follow each other on Twitter or whatever it is, you can then ask that person for a favor, for an introduction, for something in the future. And so even if someone you meet with doesn't invest, they potentially could introduce you to someone else. And so I would meet anyone, investor, not investor, someone in tech, another startup founder, someone whose friends, cousins, dogs, previous owner was a VC. I mean, I didn't care who you were. If there was 
any small inkling that you could potentially be a conduit to someone else, I would sit down and have a coffee with you. And that's really how I built my network and ended up meeting every angel investor, every VC that I possibly wanted to meet. And that's just to get in the door. That's just for the opportunity to pitch. But building that network from scratch is hard work. But I, I really think that that's the key to fundraising is, is just networking, meeting people and using the goodwill of the community to sort of get the intros that you need. So out of all the coffees that you went for and, and the money that you raised and kind of everything you've built with Maz, what have been some of the biggest lessons that you've learned so far? Well, as far as capital goes, and, and I feel like we're in a, a category of startup that um, is not that common and, and is not talked about that much. But so we raised we raised a seed round of a million dollars. Then we raised basically like a second seed or a bridge and a couple of other small assorted rounds that yeah totaled over two million. And then we went out to raise a series A in I guess this is like 2000. 13 into really 2014 is where I spent almost the, the whole year just out meeting with VCs here on the East Coast, out in Silicon Valley. Again, anywhere that anyone would meet with me, I would go. And the problem was that there had been a lot of hype around media technology when we were raising our seed in like 2012. But by 2014, there was sort of a cooling as far as media tech specifically. And it was very, very hard for us to raise a Series A. Meanwhile, revenue kept coming in. We kept closing deals. We knew that we were doing something right because we kept getting new customers and getting more and more revenue. And we were constantly updating our pitch deck because the numbers from last month had been eclipsed by the numbers from this month. And every few months, we would say, okay, we have X number of months in the bank. We have to raise money before whatever six months. And then six months would come and go. And somehow magically, we had another six months in the bank. And that just kept happening, kept happening. And eventually, I said, you know what, we don't need to raise this money. I'm wasting all my time pitching these VCs. I'm not in the office. I'm not here with the team. I'm not helping in the sales. I'm not leading the product the way I used to. My, my full-time job now is just to pitch these VCs and we're not getting anywhere. Meanwhile, the business is growing. So what we decided to do was to become profitable and to run our business sustainably. And the way we did that was by freezing our expenses and letting the revenues continue to grow and overtake our expenses so that instead of operating at a loss, we were operating at a gain. And we've been doing that for the past few years. And so, you know, we sort of took an interesting turn because I feel like a lot of startups at that stage, if, if you can't raise money, they just end up going out of business, just closing up shop. Or they continue to raise until maybe they eventually do raise, but it's at really bad terms or, you know, and they get crazy diluted or there are all sorts of outcomes. But we were lucky or I don't even know if that's the right term, but I mean, we just worked really, really hard to find a third path which was to just do it ourselves and just basically fund ourselves. And so we've continued to grow and expand dramatically over the past couple of years purely by generating profits and reinvesting those profits into the places that we think the business can grow. And so it's like raising new money, but it's from our own revenue, which is really, really exhilarating and, and freeing because it's our own money instead of someone else's money. Yeah, that's amazing that you guys were able to find that third path, as you mentioned. And, and I, we're looking forward to seeing, you know, the continuous success with with Maz. But, you know, in your spare time, you're also an assistant professor at Columbia University in New York. So can you tell us a bit more about what led you to teaching UX and product management? 
Yeah, so I've been teaching at Columbia for about a year and a half now, so I'm, I'm fairly new at it. I've been teaching with General Assembly for over five years, and so one thing that I really missed after leaving Apple was teaching. I really loved training people, whether it was consumers or initially when I was teaching them the creative software or sort of internal training employees. And so when General Assembly started here in New York, and this is very early days, they were basically like a co-working startup at the beginning, not an education company the way that they are today. But they had one classroom at GA. And the way it started really was that startups were just sort of teaching other startups different things. And so I would teach this class about design. And it was almost more like sharing the work I was doing and best practices and stuff like that. But that ended up turning into something more significant. And um, as GA expanded into their enterprise business, I ended up teaching and training part-time with GA on topics around user experience, product management, digital advertising, to big Fortune 500 companies like General Electric, Walmart and, you know, dozens of other big, big companies, right? They basically airdrop me in to meet with their executives about UX and really sort of how to think like a startup, how to approach problems like a startup, um, which is really hard to do for these really big companies. And so a couple of years ago, I was approached by Columbia Business School, which is interesting, about teaching as part of their MBA program. And of course, I don't have an MBA. I didn't go to business school. So I didn't know much about B-schools. Obviously, Columbia being one of the best is, is one of the only things that I really knew. But what I was interested to learn was that they were really looking to expand their curriculum to include more technology-related topics because more and more MBA students are not pursuing sort of the typical career paths in finance, but instead getting into technology. And so I put together a curriculum and uh, a course around user experience and product management. And that's what I've been teaching now for um, a few semesters there. And so these are like big lecture style classes, 70, 80, I think in the spring now, a hundred person lecture hall where I teach MBA students about user experience and about product management. And a lot of my students have now graduated and have jobs as product managers at Amazon and Facebook, which is so cool like to see. And really the idea is I'm not training these people how to be UX designers per se, but it's really about how to think about UX as a business tool. Um, and as a business differentiator, I believe that UX is much broader than a design discipline, that UX is ultimately something that can be leveraged at the strategic level. Whereas if you really, really value the experience of your users, of your customers, and that is your guiding light, basically at, at every juncture, you can create a real strategy around that. And that's really what I sort of preach in my class. So Professor Paul teaches once a week. It's an evening class. It's like a four-hour marathon once a week class. So those days are really long days because I, I come right from the office and, and go teach. But I find it just super exhilarating to be with the students and, and uh, very energizing. That's amazing. I, I'm also a product designer, a UX designer myself. And going through school, you know, in 2006, there was none of this stuff. So it's really cool how now, uh, you know, we're all able to kind of give back through these through these programs. So it's great that you're, you know, you're both part of a Columbia and General Assembly. Yeah. Like what, what did you study in school? 
it was actually an interesting program. It was a joint partnership between a university in Ottawa and a, and a college um, where you would go to the university level to learn the theory, but then you would go to co- the college level and learn all the hands-on. And even, even at that time, it was like early days. Like, there was no UX design. There was no, you know, it was really just like, what is web design and, and how do you do some of the fundamental web design stuff? And, you know, this graphic design, there was Flash's Dreamweaver, you know, there was, you know, Macromedia products and stuff like that. So it's funny how all these things are no longer here, but, you know, now looking back, there's, I live in Toronto and there's like, OCAD has an amazing program. There's Ladies Learning Code, there's Hacker U, there's a whole bunch of them. So people entering into the design scene nowadays, it's uh, it's so cool that they have these programs and, you know, you might not have to go to and spend far less and actually get a really interesting job out of it. Yeah, exactly. It's so funny you talk about like the Macromedia products. Like in college, I was a TA for some classes around that. So even though I it wasn't my major, I was sort of engaging with those sorts of classes. And yeah, there was no UX, there was no entrepreneurship major, which is now like a major, you know, like it, it's funny to see some of these things that now become formalized in academia. And it's interesting to think about the things that are sort of on the fringes today that will become sort of formalized and part of academia, like 10 years from now. But I start my UX class every semester by saying long before it was called UX, people cared about their customers. And and so a lot of it is really just almost like marketing. It's like spin, even product management, you know, like these are sort of new agey, buzzy sorts of terms for things that obviously these are functions that were being done in generations past. And so I always try to keep that in mind that it's very likely that 10 years from now, UX will be like an outdated term and there'll be some other cool thing that, you know, the cool kids like to talk about. <laughs> but but the the essence of it is will still sort of be the same, you know. So to me, all of all of those sorts of fuzzy things are sort of fleeting, you know. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool how you start off the program like that. That that makes total sense. So, you know, again, in your spare time, you're you're also a fellow podcaster, which is amazing. So can you tell us a bit more about the show, you know, Wizardist and what motivated you to start it? Yeah, so I'm very happy to be on today because this is the first time I've ever been on someone else's podcast. So thank you again for having me. It's really exciting. So I started my podcast, Wizardist, about almost a year ago, but it was sort of stop and go at the beginning. And over the past few months, I've become much more sort of regimented about it. And now there are new episodes coming out every two weeks. And it's, it's more, I'm taking it a lot more seriously and, and booking guests, you know, out weeks in advance and really starting to become a more serious endeavor for me. And really the reason that it started was because I was writing and I, and I also have a website called wizardist.com. It's a wizardist EST, like the most wizardist. And so I love to write about tech. I love to write about startups. I love to write about a lot of the issues that I think are, are interesting and that I'm passionate about. But I find that writing is super hard to find time to do and that to write even a pretty short piece ends up taking forever because you go back, you edit it, you move some paragraphs around. Like There's a lot of post-production when it comes to writing, or at least in my experience. And then I like to make cool graphics and I just get way too into it. And then I thought podcasting is pretty interesting because you sit down and you talk. And of course, there's some light editing or whatever, but you're really just capturing the conversation. And it actually relates back to that thousand coffees thing where I'm having these interesting conversations all the time with 
people that I meet, people that I know, other startup founders, VCs, people from some of the bigger tech companies. And I'm usually meeting them for like coffee or breakfast or lunch or something, you know, off the record. And I realize like these are really interesting conversations that what would it look like if I tried to basically capture these and make them public and and sort of expose others to these amazing people that I'm lucky enough to hang out with and talk to. And so um, we just passed our 10th episode. So it's still pretty, pretty fresh. But the first batch are really just friends and contacts that I've made over the years from the tech world and bringing them on to just talk about the things that we would talk about if the mics were off. And what I found and what's really interesting, I don't know if you guys find this, but like I find that the conversations are actually really different than the conversations that I was having over coffee. And they're way better and cooler and deeper. And I'm uncovering interesting things about people that I might have talked to a dozen other times prior or or more and never really gotten to that place. There's something about putting a mic in front of someone and taking away all the distractions. You know, you're getting a coffee and you're mid-sentence and the waiter comes over to ask you if you want a refill and it sort of just kills the flow. And I never really realized any of that until I started sitting down with folks and the only thing you do is talk to one another and there's no... There's no distraction. There's no texts coming into your phone. You're just really getting down to it. And so uh, it's been a really, really exciting process for me. And and I feel like I'm getting better at it. Um, and I have some really great guests lined up from, from Facebook and Google and Amazon, from some of the media companies that we work with at Maz. Um, and so I'm starting to branch out into not only the people that I know from my, my own life, but people that I know just very peripherally and starting to sort of branch out into the types of guests that I would want to hear myself. Like, who are the people that I would like to hear on a podcast? And, and those are the sorts of people that I'm trying to reach out to. Yeah, absolutely. That's really awesome. I completely agree that, you know, like you, you get people uh, onto, onto the show, put a mic in front of them, you start chatting and, and it just opens up and you get all this, all this cool extra information uh, a lot of the times that, that, you know, it just leads down really interesting conversational paths. So we'll, we'll have to uh, stay tuned. We'll make sure that we link to, to your show so other people can check it out. Yes, please. Again, it's, it's, it's sort of a new project, but I'm every day I'm becoming more and more passionate about it and, and trying to figure out, you know, how to make it better and how to get more people to listen. And um, again, I'm, I'm really excited to be here because being on the other side of the mic is, is also really educational. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. <laughs> and and <laughs> it's exciting that uh, we're, we're the first podcast that uh, you've had a chance to be, uh, be, uh, be on. So we started the trend because I'm sure you're going to get picked up and, and be on, on a bunch more after this. That's very kind. I hope you're right. So we've chatted about a, a ton of different things, you know, throughout the course of the episode. But do you have any, you know, just general final thoughts or words of advice to other entrepreneurs out there? Yeah, I mean, we could we could do a whole podcast on words of wisdom. You know, I think the most interesting thing that I've discovered as an entrepreneur over the last seven some odd years of starting uh, since starting Maz is that there's always somebody just behind you and there's always somebody just ahead of you. And what I mean by that is basically I am an expert in startups up to the exact point that I'm up to. So if you're just getting off the ground, if you're raising some money, if you're getting customers, you're putting together a team, I know all about it. But as soon as you get ahead of where I am, I know nothing. It's literally a big black hole. It's funny, in a weird way, parenting is the same. Like I have a two-year-old daughter and up to two years old, I am an expert. 
And one day ahead of where we are right now, I know literally nothing. If you put a five-year-old in front of me, I would have no idea what to expect. And so that's a humbling thought and also empowering in a way because I guess what I'm trying to say is that if it seems daunting, that's normal and that it continues to be daunting forever. It's just the stuff that used to be daunting isn't daunting anymore. You'll just find new stuff. And that's what is so exciting about it. So if you can survive today and make it to tomorrow, today's problems will seem very small and simple, but then you'll have some new problems that you have to solve. And that's that's what makes it so exciting and, and so interesting. And so people with a low threshold for anxiety, I would recommend do not start a company. But if that's the sort of thing that gets you going, those new challenges and and sort of never feeling satisfied and never feeling really accomplished because there's just some new thing that you have to deal with tomorrow and some new puzzle that you need to figure out. There's really nothing like it because every day is is something new that you haven't experienced yet. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. I couldn't think of a better way to end the episode. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It was awesome to have you on the show. Thank you so much for, for having me. We'll meet in person. I, I make it out to Toronto every once in a while, so we should definitely meet up for my thousandth and one coffee. That sounds amazing. I'll hold you to it. <laughs> okay. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear about it and have you share it with friends. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at hack to start or drop us a line, hey at hacktostart.com. You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding Hack to Start on Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.